Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. So today, we've got something of a challenge. Chris, you can explain this as it was your idea. So we decided to look at all the physical computing devices that have physical compute cores that we would consider to belong to us in our house that we can touch and count up the number of those cores added together and see who has the most cores in their house, the most compute cores. <laughs> and this is inspired by petrol heads. I don't know what the American term for that is. People who are really into cars. Yeah. So they have a cylinder count, I think. Is that right, Gary? I think that's what you said. Yeah, I think it's gearheads, they call them in the States, isn't it? The cylinder index. That's the way we go. The cylinder index. So it's our core index that we've counted up. Right. So we've done this in two categories. One is actively used machines, and one is what I'm calling the pile, or some of you are calling the drawer, machines <laughs> that we don't really use at all. <laughs> so should we just start with the actively used score, the pile score, and the total for each of us? So Gary, go first. So the actively used pile for me is 78 CPU cores. The stack of slash not daily used pile is 22 CPU cores, bringing the total to 97. Okay, that's respectable. Dalton, what about you? My active use pile is 62. I broke them down by architecture, but we won't worry about that right now. The pile is 121 for a grand total of 183 processing cores. <laughs> I thought I might win this, but now I've realized that I'm not going to. <laughs> Chris, what about you? I have 47 total cores in active use and 82 idlers, so 129 total cores. Right, well, I've got 70 active and 72 in the pile, which makes 142, I think. Now I don't feel so bad about my uh, pile of random crap. This is good. <laughs> So the first thing this made me think is, oh my God, how much compute power do I have sat gathering dust in drawers that I really, I should sort through some of and maybe give away because they could be being used. And eventually there is a point, isn't there, with all of this stuff where it crosses over into not really viable for anyone to use because it's too old. I think most of the stuff I've got is still just about viably usable but some of the networking equipment which has socs in usually with physical cores some of it's starting to just get too weak to toss packets around for most people even with a moderately low internet speed and low average lan and it is going to become landfill potentially although it could be repurposed in other countries which i have done with stuff before the thing that jumped out at me is how many cores the ARM devices have, they tend to have quite a lot. Like the Rock Pro 64 that I've got sitting in a box behind me, it's got six cores in it. I forgot to count my Rock Pro 64. Oh, retally, Dalton, retally. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Joe. The, the smartphone. So most of my devices, even the laptops which I have and then the desktops, have two or four physical cores with hyperthreading a lot of them. It's only my OnePlus 6T, which has eight cores, and I've got phones in the drawer which have eight cores as well. So yeah, the ARM devices tend to have more physical cores. Now, there is the kind of big little architecture and it's different construction, but 
again, I'm just looking at it thinking like even the third gen Moto G is a quad core SOC. And I think it's clocked to like 1.2 gigahertz, which is not too shabby. It is if you try to use anything modern on it. Yeah, to be fair, I've got more than one, but I didn't count it because it's now my four-year-old's. So I've set her up with a parental controls Google account and uh, she uses like educational games on it. And it's great. She like traces letters and things. But I noticed that there is lag even in like 2D educational games that are only loading incredibly basic things. So that's one of the ones that is pushing the grave. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Jay. Of the... 97 total cores i've got 24 of those are in just like random iot devices that are sitting behind tvs and stuff it's pretty insane i didn't realize that the little unify like cloud key thing had an eight core system on chip in it but yeah (laughs) the arm stuff i have 135 arm cores and 28 x86 so I really only got to where I did because of the box of phones for UbiPort stuff that I had. Well, I've got something else that you should tally. Of all of those cores, how many of them are on machines that are running proper GNU slash Linux? Android doesn't count. Do you count embedded stuff that you know is Linux or actual Linux machines that you can SSH into? I think the latter because you could argue that Android devices are embedded Linux. So no proper you can SSH into it devices. Okay, I have a feeling Dalton might lose this, so you can go first. Four for x86 and eight for ARM. So 12, okay. I have 20, which is not too bad. Only one of them is, oh no, more than one. Yeah, one of them is ARM, the Raspberry Pi Zero, which is running Raspbian or Raspberry Pi OS, if you want to call it that. 24 for me, one of which is ARM. 40. this means you're the real linux user of all of us jay you have the most kernel threads running at any time congratulations (laughs) i think it just means that my stack of laptops is actually pretty decent because i've got some very old single core 32-bit x86 machines which are really no good for anything at this point but uh it helps that i've got three laptops and two desktops and my nas and another backup server, and uh, also my quad-core. I think it's a, a E64, they call it. It's a, a little Raspberry Pi ripoff. That's what I call Noisatron, my white noise machine. So I got four in with that. Okay, so I actually have 16 because of the Synology box, but yeah, it, that's looking pretty dire, isn't it? Quite a lot of the stuff I've got sitting in drawers is running Linux because it's like scratching an itch. I like to get something that's broken, fix it up, get Linux running on it, get it functioning. And I'm like, yes, I've achieved something. Then it goes into a drawer. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll pull it out like twice a year and do some updates on it. And yeah, it does definitely make me think that there's surely some of these that someone could actually be using on a daily basis and someone who really needs a computer rather than them just sitting in a drawer like... There's a, a number that you can keep. As we've discussed many times before, a stack of laptops will get you out of a sticky situation. But how big the stack needs to be is another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking down my list of in the pile, almost all of them can run Linux. There's only a couple, like the two iPhone 5Cs that I got that were smash screens, but still technically power on. So I counted them. But apart from that, there's a few phones, but they can run custom ROMs, so that almost counts. 
But I don't think there's anything in my pile apart from those two iPhones that won't run some sort of custom operating system. The only thing in my pile of laptops and PCs that won't run Linux is a 286. <laughs> Not sure you can really count that. You just aren't trying hard enough. Surely you counted it as one of the cores, though. I did count it as one of the cores. It does have a CPU core, yeah. So that was an interesting thing. I counted, like, the Game Boy and a MIPS and a 6502 that I have. But those are less powerful than the CPU in my toaster oven. <laughs> Yeah, I realized I have four BT home hubs flashed with OpenWRT <laughs> as I was looking <laughs> through the drawers. And they're all just sat there and they have a 500 megahertz dual core SOC. Which works for this. Well, yeah, that, that it counts. But, you know, on the OpenWRT forums, often people bring up like, will it be fast enough? And really, it, it can only do moderate level VDSL really as a basic router, anything above that, it will start to fall over very quickly unless it's really light usage. So to the farm, they go. The thing that really surprised me is how many of these things that I've got around the house just have an overlapping purpose. So as I was doing this, I realized that each of the TVs in the house have both a Chromecast and an Apple TV. <laughs> I've got two laptops for work, two personal laptops, two phones, <laughs> uh, three NAS boxes, two tablets. And it just made me think, do I really need two or three of each of these things? And obviously at some point I've gone out and spent money on these things, but it wasn't until it was written down and in a spreadsheet that I really realized the extent of it. Yeah, I am exactly the same as you, Gary. Basically everything on the list has an active backup <laughs> usage plus extra backups in the drawer, all of which could function. I've still got the Google Stadia 20 pound pack, which I got a refund for in the shrink wrap, which has a Chromecast inside and a Stadia controller. I've not even opened it. Well, I think me getting 40 for the actively used machines that run GNU slash Linux was seriously helped by my M1 MacBook Air, which has eight cores in it. So thanks Asahi, you made me win. And also you didn't let us use our cloud systems. <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. Thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at linuxafterdark.net slash support. And remember for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Late Night Linux. And if you want to get in contact, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. So Dalton, you've been hacking a Wii U, which I understand is quite an old Nintendo 
game console thing that looks a bit like a shit Steam Deck. Okay, so it's not that old. (laughs) I was recently informed of a local game store, and I went in, and there it was, a 32 gigabyte Wii U. And I said, I don't need this. May I have it? (laughs) And that is how I ended up with a Nintendo Wii U. This was a mistake. So quick overview, the Wii U is a tri-core power PC processor inside of a box with some GPU and an additional gamepad screen thing that is the games controller that looks kind of like a discount Steam Deck and feels like a discount Steam Deck as well (laughs) that streams video over Wi-Fi Direct from the console. Oh, so you do need a Wii to use this then? You need the Wii U to use the Wii U gamepad. Oh, so the gamepad has the screen in it. It's the gamepad that looks like the Steam Deck. Yes. Uh, and okay. See, this is the confusing bit of the marketing that meant why this console went nowhere. The Wii U is not an add-on to the Wii. It is a completely separate console. So the controller is showing a stream of a full gaming experience from the main console bit where you put the games in. Sometimes. <laughs> this is why this stupid thing failed. Oh, it looks like a floppy drive, the actual Wii U itself. Like an external <laughs> floppy drive. It does. <laughs> a zip drive. <laughs> yeah. So you need both the Wii U and the Wii U gamepad to do literally anything on the Wii U. The system settings app displays exclusively on the gamepad. So you can't even boot this thing without a gamepad available. Wow. Which is why they're so expensive now. And just terrible decisions like that. I mean, it's cool, but sometimes you can't actually play the games on the gamepad exclusively. You need to have the TV and the gamepad. It's just a terrible idea. Anyway, I hacked it. This is where I was kind of talking about fun open source software in our hopes episode, because everything that you do to get this thing from completely bone dry stock to... I can play PlayStation 1 games on this, and it definitely wasn't meant to do that, Nintendo. It's all, or at least mostly, open source software, and it's also applied security theory. So let's back up. There is a website called wiiu.hacks.guide, and you go to that and it gives you all the instructions to get your Wii U to the point where it can run homebrew or backed up copies of games. And... The first thing it tells you to do is you take your SD card, you format it FAT32, and you plug it into your computer, you copy a few files onto it. That is the installer for the custom firmware, and basically the custom firmware itself. You plug that into your Wii U, you open the web browser, and you go to wiiuexploit.xyz. <laughs> this sounds much like homebrewing the Wii, where you got to a certain level in LEGO Indiana Jones, and it sideloaded it. It's gotten way easier than that. Now you just either you take your phone or laptop with Bluetooth and you just send some bad data to it and the Wii pops or you plug it in SD card. So you're at wiiuexploit.xyz. You click a button that says run exploit and then the Wii U fades to white and launches into what looks like just an old terminal emulator. It's great. I love it. How do you even put text on it though? You don't have to. The program that's running is just controlled with the gamepad's directional pad and A button. Oh, right. And that's where you can choose to install what's called the payload loader, which runs before the Wii U menu and brings in all the custom firmware stuff. And once you do that, you reboot the Wii U, it asks you what you want to boot, and you're done. That's it. 
I was expecting you to say you had to crack it open, short some pins, get a serial terminal going, all that kind of stuff. But that that's quite simple. I mean, relatively compared to what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, me too. No, and this is what's great about recent consoles that have internet access is that people stop updating them. There's these giant bugs where you can just get remote code execution from going to a website and no one ever fixes them. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) So when you saw it in the shop, did you know this or did you buy it and think, maybe I can hack this? I knew that I could hack it when I saw it in the shop. I wasn't going in looking for a Wii U, but it was there. It was complete. It was in good condition. It's like, I'm never going to have an opportunity like this. Let's see what this piece of junk can do. How much did you pay for this thing, Dalton? Under $200. <laughs> you could <laughs> buy a Series S for that. An Xbox Series <laughs> S is like $199 in the UK now. <laughs> that is too much money for that, Dalton. It is a fair price for a Wii U that is complete right now because the gamepad is everything to that console, which is where I think there has been a reverse engineering effort for the gamepad protocol. If you could get the software to emulate the gamepad on the Steam Deck, I mean, it's not cheaper, but it would at least let you use the 30 to $50 console alone rather than needing to buy the more expensive gamepad with it. Because Nintendo never sold them separate. All the glory of 854 by 480 pixels on a resistive touchscreen as well. I know, right? And that's what's so expensive. And so what have you actually ended up with then? Being able to play PlayStation games and presumably other emulators as well then? So the nice thing with the Wii U is it can go back through the entire Nintendo library. Practically. There's some blind spots, but we'll ignore that. So, obviously, you don't get Switch. The Switch came after the Wii U. You can't emulate a new thing on an old thing, usually. But you can do Wii U. It has virtual Wii mode, which runs all your Wii games and needs all of your Wii peripherals. You can't play Wii mode using any of the Wii U peripherals. We're not going to talk about that. You mean I can't do bowling using the big touchscreen thing? That's a shame. (laughs) No, wouldn't that be great? It would be, or tennis. Something like that. But you can go back to the uh, NES, as you call it, and the SNES, as you call it, or NES and SNES, as we call it in Britain. I would call it the latter, but yes. So you've got your virtual Wii, which means you've got Wii and GameCube, and then there's lots of injectors, they're called, to run ROMs that weren't officially in the Nintendo eShop on the emulators built into the console. Can you play Sega and other consoles, or is it just strictly Nintendo? I would expect that someone has made a Genesis emulator, but I don't have any affiliation with any of those systems. I never played one of them. I see. I was much more of a Sega person. I had a Game Gear and a Mega Drive Genesis, as you call it. So that's that's all the emulators I'm interested in, uh, old Sega ones. So it doesn't give you like a kind of RetroArch style front end. Funny you should say that. RetroArch has builds for the Wii U. Okay, so you could do what Joe's just said if you were so inclined, if there are cores available. Yeah, and most of the cores are available. It just takes a while to copy them onto the SD card because FAT32. But yeah, you can get RetroArch running and you can either run the core separately or you can run the actual RetroArch interface from the Wii U interface, which is really funny. (laughs) (laughs) And you said you can run your definitely legally backed up ROM images for Wii U games, presumably. So if you got a large SD card, you could copy those over and run them. You need a USB drive. They only sold the Wii U in 8 gig or 32 gig 
configurations. Right. And the games can be up to 25. So you need an external USB drive formatted with its proprietary thing. Right. So it's more difficult than a homebrewed Wii. And honestly, if you're trying to get into console hacking and experiencing the Nintendo library, I'd probably go with just buying like a $20 Wii and making sure it doesn't have any roaches in it (laughs) over trying to get the Wii U. So if you could find one of these things cheaply, Dalton, would you recommend doing it? Or was it just instant regret as soon as you played with it for more than a couple of hours? I like the Nintendo library and I wanted to play games that were on the Wii U. If you want to play Wii or GameCube or basically anything older, just get a Wii. Or just get a Steam Deck. Or honestly, there's emulators for all of this stuff now. You don't need the original hardware anymore. But that's not as fun though, is it? It's not necessarily. The Wii U gamepad is a very unique way to interact with the computer system. (laughs) And I don't know, I just love that shit. So, for example, I have a Surface Dial, which is a rotary encoder for your computer. And everyone I tell that is like, what the hell do you do with that? And I say, oh, you scroll web pages and you change the volume and stuff. And they go, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But I love it. So I think it's fun. I think it's novel. It's really stupid. The Wii U was a terrible console. I'm glad that it failed and we don't have more of them. So it's just going on the stack of laptops then? No, I'm currently playing Wind Waker HD on it. There you go. Sounds like a success. I wondered why you were distracted. <laughs> oh, not currently, currently. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. You can email us, show at linuxafterdark.net, and tell us how many cores you've got and whether you've ever hacked a console before. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. I make poor purchasing decisions. <laughs> See you later. <laughs>